If you haven't listened to the first Robert Durst episode, you may want to listen to that before this one, or by now. You already know a lot about Robert Durst because this has been in the media a lot lately. So we're going to treat this kind of like the type of movie that starts with the ending and then backs up, because you probably already know the ending. Robert Durst was recently convicted of murder and then he passed away. And I'm your host, Koi, and this is the story of the trial, the shocking confessions, and the conspiracies surrounding Robert Durst. Okay, so here's a quick recap of the first episode on Robert Durst. Robert was born in 1943. He was the oldest of four kids. His parents were real estate investors. The family's current net worth is about $8 billion. When Robert was seven years old, his mom committed suicide by jumping from the roof of their home. He said that the moments before she jumped, his dad walked him to see her on the roof where he witnessed her death. Robert's brother, Douglas, always said that Robert was lying and that he never witnessed their mother's death. In 1953, Robert was seen by a psychiatrist where he was described as possibly having schizophrenia and personality decomposition. In 1971, Robert met Kathleen McCormick, who was a dental hygienist. In 1973, they ended up getting married on Robert's 30th birthday in New York City. Friends of Kathy have said that Robert was both emotionally and physically abusive towards her. In a diary kept by Kathy that was released in the HBO documentary The Jinx, she described several abusive moments with Robert, one which he even punched her in the face and she had to get treated at a hospital. Three weeks after Kathy was in the hospital, she and Robert had another fight. According to Robert, this was on January 31, 1982. Robert described this fight as yelling with some pushing and shoving. After the fight, he said that Kathy wanted to drive the car to another house that they had. He didn't want her to drive, so he took her to put her on a train to go to the other house. He claimed that he talked to her later that night on the phone from a payphone. Kathy hasn't been seen since then. In 1990, Robert filed for divorce against Kathy, claiming that she abandoned him. In 2017, she was legally declared dead. Years earlier, when Robert was in college, he lived in Los Angeles, California. There he became friends with Susan Berman who was a journalist and a screenwriter. In 2000, Susan's body was found inside of her L.A. home with a gunshot wound to the back of her head. Investigators learned that Robert Durst had recently given her $50,000, which he would say that it was to help her get through some tough times. Just before her death, the district attorney from New York wanted to sit down and talk with Susan about Kathy's disappearance. Susan had told some friends of hers that she was expecting Robert to visit her around Christmas time. Police were able to place Robert in California when he flew in just north of San Francisco on December 19th. Robert was able to be tracked traveling south towards LA as he checked his voicemail from a payphone. Robert then flew out of San Francisco on December 23rd, which was the same day that the LA coroner's office believed that Susan was killed. A few days after Susan's body was found, Beverly Hills Police Department received a handwritten note in the mail. It was postmarked on December 23rd. The note had Susan's address written on it with the word cadaver. On the letter, Beverly and Beverly Hills was spelled wrong. The author of the letter put an extra E in there between the L and the Y. 
In his interview on the Jinx documentary, the filmmakers bring up the letter to Robert, and he responded saying that Susan's killer would have been the one to write the letter. The letter was also written in all capital block letters, and in the documentary, Robert said that his theory was that the author of the letter was trying to disguise their handwriting. The working theory here was that when Kathy went missing, Robert confided in Susan for what really happened. When Susan hit difficult financial times, she reached out to Robert. Maybe she mentions to him that she still knew what he did and that she needs money. Robert paid her, and then he found out that the district attorney wanted to speak with her. He panicked and then killed her. But wait, there's a little bit more because in October of 2001, garbage bags were found floating in the Bay of Galveston, Texas. Inside the bags were the dismembered body of Morris Black. Investigators learned that Morris had a neighbor, an older mute lady named Dorothy Siner, who was in fact Robert Durston hiding. And there was a little bit more evidence that connected Robert to this murder. After a little surveillance, Robert was arrested going to pick up his eyeglasses. When the trial came, Robert said that he was hiding as an old lady to avoid reporters from New York. He admitted to killing Morse, but claimed it was in self-defense when Morse attacked him with a gun. Robert said that he didn't know what to do next. He panicked and then dismembered Morse's body, then tossed the trash bags in the bay. In court, Robert was found not guilty for murder. Fast forward to 2015. Things begin catching up to Robert. This is when he was arrested for Susan's murder by the FBI in New Orleans. And this is where today's story begins. The trial of Robert Durst was the title that covered the media, but in reality, it was the trial for Susan Berman. This trial was really drawn out for several years. In February 2017, Nick Shaven came forward to testify that Robert confessed to him that he killed Susan. Nick appeared to be a credible witness. He was very close friends to Robert for many years, and Robert was even the best man in his wedding. Court hearings were scheduled to begin October of 2017. As the court date approached, a natural disaster struck. In August of 2017, Hurricane Harvey struck the coast of Texas and Louisiana. The hurricane caused approximately $125 billion worth of damage and killed 100 people. Some of Robert's defense team lived in the areas affected by the hurricane, and their homes were destroyed during it. So the judge continued the hearing until April 2018 to allow them time to be with their families and get their living situation adjusted. By this time, Robert Durst would have been 75 years old. A lot of the witnesses for this trial was about his age or even older. There were some concerns that these witnesses may not be around once the trial began, so pre-trial hearings were done to get as much testimony as they could from the witnesses. This lasted until January of 2019. At that time, the judge set the trial date to begin on September 3rd of 2019. The judge also ruled that prosecutors could present evidence from the murder of Morris Black. The theory from the prosecutors was that all three of these cases were connected. Robert killed his wife, Kathy. He confided in Susan about this. Years later, Robert tried to pay her money to tell her not to tell anyone. After he found out that prosecutors wanted to talk to her, he then killed her. He went into Texas to hide. Morris Black found out who he was, so he then killed Morris. As crazy as that seems, it's also a very likely theory. Before Robert was arrested in 2015, he was interviewed for the HBO documentary called The Jinx. Robert was advised against doing this by his lawyers at the time, but Robert insisted, and he did whatever he wanted to do. Robert's attorneys argued that the producers of The Jinx was working with law enforcement and that it was a big conspiracy theory to set Robert up. The biggest thing 
that they leaned on for this was that they believed the timing of the arrest and the documentary was planned in order to maximize the media attention around the case since he was arrested right before the finale. However, prosecutors argued just the opposite. Because of the documentary being released, that's when law enforcement received the information that Robert was trying to flee the country. Then, when he was arrested, he had a fake ID, latex face mask, maps of Louisiana, Florida, and Cuba, which just so happens not to have an extradition treaty with the U.S. He had $42,000 in cash on him and access to another $117,000 that was sent by a friend. So, that conspiracy theory didn't really stand. During this interview for HBO is when Robert brought up the note that was sent to the Beverly Hills Police Department about Susan's body. During the interview, he said that the note would have been written by the killer and that he was not the one who wrote it. Just remember that for just a second. In May of 2019, the trial was postponed again for another four months due to the volume of evidence to go through and conflicts with attorney schedules. I can only imagine that trying to schedule a high-profile murder case in Los Angeles is a little bit more difficult than trying to schedule a doctor's appointment. But after four more months, things were moved back again for various reasons. But then, the day before Christmas, December 24th, 2019, Robert and his attorneys made a shocking statement. Alright, I promise this ad break won't be too long, and you can get right back to listening to this episode, but I just wanted to take a minute to let you all know that I have a Patreon now, and for just a few bucks a month, you can help support this show, get extra episodes, and a few other perks, with more on the way, and I just really greatly appreciate all the support, whether it's Patreon, leaving ratings, reviews, liking the Instagram, Facebook page, or just listening to this. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you all so much. And I don't think that was too long of an ad. Back to the episode. That was a well-timed break, if I can say so myself. On Christmas Eve 2019, Robert's attorneys filed court documents saying that Robert Durst was the one who wrote the cadaver note. The same note that was sent to the Beverly Hills Police Department about Susan being dead. The same note that in an interview on national TV just a few years earlier, Robert stated that the killer was the one who wrote the note. I'm clearly no lawyer here, and there's a lot that I don't understand, but I really don't understand why you even try to go to a trial after this. The defense attorney said that it didn't mean that the person who wrote the note was the murderer, just that they knew of the body. So, after years and years of being put on hold, the trial finally began on March 2nd of 2020. I'm sure you can guess what happened next. The entire nation, or the entire world, shut down. The trial was postponed again. This time it was due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Although the trial had been delayed and postponed several years up to that point, This was the time that the defense requested a mistrial because it was delayed, but the motion for the mistrial was denied. The trial didn't resume again until over a year later, in May of 2021. The Robert Durst that sat in the courtroom looked to be the much older and fragile version of the one that appeared in the documentary just a few years prior. He was bound to a wheelchair, frail, had a hoarse voice, could barely hear, 
to the point where he is reading the transcript of what was being said in court on a tablet. He is outfitted in a brown jumpsuit, much different than the suits that the millionaire real estate hero was used to wearing. On June 10th, Robert was hospitalized after he was found on the ground, and he had recently been diagnosed with bladder cancer. There had been suspicions that Robert was faking a medical crisis. The cancer was real and was proven to be real, but Robert was recorded on a jail phone call saying to someone that he was going to force a mistrial by faking to have dementia. The judge said that he had no idea whether the medical situation was real or not, and he did not grant other mistrial motions. Robert took the stand in August. When he was questioned by the prosecutors, he was asked that if he had been the one to murder Susan, would he ever even admit it? He said that he would not admit it, even if he did do it. Robert admitted that he had lied under oath before. When asked why his testimony should be considered credible, he responded, because what I'm saying is mostly the truth. There are certain things I would lie about, certain very important things. It's very convincing to a jury that he's definitely telling the truth. Robert then talked about the end of the jinx, where he was in the bathroom and was recorded saying, what the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. He claimed that there was more to that. He said that he was talking to himself and he asked himself the question of, what the hell did I do? Then the part that he did not say out loud or say loud enough for the mic to pick up was, they'll think I killed them all, of course. So he's just claiming that he was talking to himself and he didn't mention the they'll all think part out loud. Despite having a map of Cuba and a lot of cash, Robert said that he wasn't planning to run and that he had planned to kill himself prior to the FBI agents arresting him in New Orleans. When Robert was asked about the comment on the documentary about only the killer would have written the note, he also claimed that the producer told him to say that. Even though he said the same exact thing in a deposition for this trial, whenever the producer was definitely not around. Robert's own brother took the stand to testify how dangerous Robert was. He even testified that he hired security that day because he felt Robert still had the means to hire someone to kill him. There's so much mystery surrounding Robert Durst's life. He was born into a millionaire family. He had everything at his footsteps to be successful. His first wife went missing, then his friend was murdered. Then he goes into hiding and someone else is murdered and somehow he's acquitted on those charges. It just seemed that somehow everything always kept working out for Robert. Until now. He was 78 years old, not able to walk, barely able to talk. But on September 17th, 2021, Robert was found guilty of murdering Susan Berman and he was sentenced to life in prison. At the end of 2021, Robert tested positive for COVID-19, which just enhanced some of the other medical conditions going on. Then on January 10th, 2022, Robert Durst died of a cardiac arrest. And this is going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode. You can let me know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating or review. Even if you hate it, I'd love to know, or at least I'd like to know if you hate it. And stay tuned after the outro music for a small sample of one of the Patreon episodes. And thank you for listening.
In just about every missing persons case that lasts an extended amount of time, there's a theory that the person disappeared on their own to start a new life. To some people, that theory is a very strong possibility in this case. To others, it's not a possible theory at all. Regardless of how possible a theory may or may not be, there are a few facts. A young man is seen on video walking into a bar, but the video never shows him walking out. I'm your host, Koi, and this episode covers the story of Brian Schaefer. Brian Schaefer was born February 25, 1979. He grew up in Pinkerton, Ohio, a suburb just outside of Columbus, Ohio. After graduating high school in 1997, Brian enrolled in Ohio State University, which is in Columbus. Six years later, he graduated with a degree in microbiology. After getting his undergraduate work completed, he had his sights on becoming a doctor. He remained with Ohio State University and was enrolled in their medical college. During his second year of med school, his mother, Renee Schaefer, died of cancer in March of 2006. A loss like that is something that would be difficult for anyone to deal with, but Brian kept his struggles private. His friends knew that he was having a hard time, but in public, he put on a front for everyone and appeared that he was okay. While Brian had been in med school, he started dating another med student named Alexis. Alexis and Brian had been planning a spring break trip to Miami, Florida for several months. Brian spent hours and hours researching different things for them to do there. Several of his family members and friends also believed that Brian was trying to plan the perfect trip because he was going to propose to Alexis. On Friday, March 31st, 2006, classes at Ohio State University ended for the spring break. Brian spent the early part of that evening celebrating by going out to eat at a steakhouse with his father, Randy, and his brother. Randy noticed that Brian seemed exhausted, and with good reason. He spent several nights over the last week staying up all night or very late into the night studying for the exams before the break. Brian talked to his dad about how his plans were to go out with his friend, William Florence, who went by Clint, after their dinner. Randy was worried that Brian just needed to get some rest and he didn't need to go out with Clint. While he was worried as a father about his son's health, he also knew that Brian was an adult and he kept his feelings about this to himself. At 9 o'clock that night, Brian met Clint at a bar called the Ugly Tuna Saluna, which was in a very popular area with a lot of bars within walking distance. I'm just going to let you all know that I'm probably going to mention the Ugly Tuna Saluna a lot because it's a big part of the story and also kind of fun to say. An hour later, Brian called Alexis, who was two hours away back at her family's house in Toledo, Ohio. She went to see her family before she and Brian were supposed to fly to Miami that Monday. Brian and Clint went bar hopping along the area. They worked their way down the street, stopping at several bars. At each one, they would have a shot, hang out for a little bit, and then move to the next bar. A little after midnight, the two friends met up with one of Clint's friends, Meredith Reed, at another bar. She then gave them a ride back to the Ugly Tuna Saluna and joined them for another round of drinks. While the three of them were working on their last round of drinks, Brian ended up separated from Clint and Meredith. Clint and Meredith tried to find him. They walked around, called his phone. They went outside to try and see if he was standing around, but there was no sign of him. When the bar closed at 2 a.m., They stood at the door and watched as everyone began leaving the bar, but there was still no sign of Brian walking out. 
At that time, they assumed that he must have gone back to his apartment for some reason without telling them, so they called it a night too and headed home. As Saturday and Sunday passed, Alexis didn't hear from Brian, neither did Clint. Several calls were made to his cell phone, but there were no answers. When Monday morning came around, Alexis and Brian were supposed to leave for Miami. It was the trip that Brian had put so much effort into planning, he wouldn't have missed it for anything. But he never showed up to the airport. When he didn't show up to the airport, the Columbus Police Department was contacted, and Brian was reported as missing.